Hello and welcome to Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Prashan. I teach English literature and film studies at McEwen University, and this podcast is where I share what I'm learning about books, films, and games that involve impossible and improbable worlds. This spring of 2021, I'm doing a series of shorter episodes called Office Hours which is a bit of a misnomer since these episodes are around 15 minutes long. The last one was 20 because I'm long-winded. The same length, uh, say, as a student visit during my office hours. I have a little salt timer that's running now. Uh, and when I run out of time, it's time for me to stop. Uh, although the salt timer can't stop me, so you never know, right? And here I am rambling. Uh, these are episodes devoted to the sort of meandering, as you can tell, reflective and hopefully fun conversations I have with students who drop by my office to say hello. This week, with it being um, Pride Month, um, also because I came across a book uh, in, in just sort of going through the Kindle Daily Deals, um, Gabrielle Moss's Paperback Crush, The Totally Radical History of 80s and 90s Teen Fiction, uh, I, I have reason to want to talk about that today. So that's that's today's topic. So you imagine a student coming into my office and saying, oh, hey, what's new? And I would say, oh my gosh, this book... I uh, I came across this week. I got to tell you about it because I want to share this with you. So um, the Kindle Daily Deal is this thing that Amazon does that is on on the Kindle uh, device itself that is like going to a book sale every week. And I don't know uh, what you're like, but if you take me to a book sale and it's one of those ones where they're like $2 for a paperback or, you know, something, whatever sort of like reduced price, like a dollar for a paperback, $2 for hardcover. I'm walking out of there with a stack. I'm walking out of there with my weight in books, if I can do it. Um, and the Kindle Daily Deal is like having an ebook version of that every day. There's stuff that I'm like, oh, that'd be interesting. And when I first got the Kindle, I actually had to stop myself. I'm like, okay, no more. You're not doing this anymore. Um, and this past week, um, Gabrielle Moss's paperback crush came up. And you might be like, okay, so what? I, I, have, a, I have a huge level of nostalgia for the 1980s because that's when I grew up. That was when I was a teenager. And... Um, I, w I, I am interested in a sort of tangential way uh, in romance novels, in romance as a genre. Um, anyway, I, I read the, the preview and just the preview alone, I was like learning stuff about young adult literature. And Moss's big idea with this book is to take a look at the publishing phenomena of uh, paperbacks like... Sweet Valley High, The Babysitter's Club. It was just, there was a deluge, uh, the, the resurgence of the box office kids, or not the box office kids, the box car kids. Those box office kids were somebody else. Um, and the, the Hardy Boys, these were all, you know, uh, Nancy Drew, stuff that had been popular way back when, and then they, you know, revamped the series uh, for teens in the 1980s and a little bit in the 1990s. And I, I recalled, uh, you know, growing up, these were on the shelves of nearly every girl I knew. Like if I was over at a friend's place or I was dating somebody and I got to see their bookshelf, I love seeing people's bookshelves. It's like a thing for me. If I come over to your house, I don't know why I'm coming over to your house, but let's just pretend I come over to your house. Where do I want? I want to see your bookshelf. I legit do. People think I'll go to people's places and like, what are you doing? I'm just, I just want to take a look at your bookshelf because 
I think it's a really great way to sort of get an idea about who a person is. That's how I would, that's how I often read people. Anyway, these were everywhere. Sweet Valley High books, they were everywhere. Um, Lots of lots of young people reading uh, the Babysitters Club, and we, again, we've got a resurgence of that, a revamp of that that has been made um, with the wonderful Raina Telgemeier uh, as artist for that. As it's, it's been remade as a, as a graphic novel series, my daughter loves it. Um, so again, you know the, the resurgence kind of thing, something coming back. And, and but these were the these this was this publishing phenomenon that happened in the 1980s and the 90s, and as Gabrielle Moss argues, it happened between the sort of semi-serious children's lit of the 1970s with writers like Judy Judy Bloom and Essie Hinton with the Outsiders, which everybody ever in North America has had to read in junior high. Um, but there was that was a sort of semi-serious issues-oriented stuff, and then along comes this bubblegum pop uh, stuff that's being talked about in paper, Paperback Crush. And, and what came on the other end of that was the Harry Potter phenomenon and this deluge of young adult children's fiction that now not only are kids reading, but adults are reading as well. Um, but in the 1980s and the 90s, you know, Sweet Valley High, all that stuff, that was that was directed towards females, to, to, to girls. And um, But I'm, I'm still fascinated in this because I'm fascinated by the publishing industry. But it got me reflecting on how, uh, you know, I was thinking like, oh, I'd like to write a book like this, you know, about all those books I read when I was a teenager. And I'm like, what did I read when I was a teenager? I was reading Conan the Barbarian. I was reading a ton of comic books. I w- was racking my brain for, you know, what books were written for boys in the same way that the, the books in paper, paperback crush, you know, were written, uh, because I mean, you could say, well, maybe the you know the D and D books, all those D and D books that they churned out in the nineteen eighties, but those weren't directed at teenage boys. And I did some searching around and realized that th- there really wasn't a series, um, and that. I think also the, the sort of socialization of boys in North America in the 1980s and 90s was an extension of what it had been prior, which seems to be, uh, I mean, and I haven't done a lot of work on this. This is just, you know, the meanderings and, and my thoughts about this. But it, it seems to be like, oh, well, boys don't read. Boy, And if boys read, they want to read books about science and engineering so that they can do stuff when they grow up and become successful. It's a very interesting examination of gendering and what's what's going on there. So anyway, Gabrielle Moss's book is tons of fun, really, really fabulous. I, when I sit down to read it, even though I've never read a Sweet Valley High book, even though I've never read a Babysitter's Club book, I'm entranced not only by the content, which is illuminating, but also by Moss's prose, which is fun and conversational. And I recommend it for anybody who's into, uh, who was into those books or, you know, can imagine themselves being into those books. But this also got me thinking about children's fiction in general, and children's fiction, particularly in the way it's taught in universities, or at least the way that it was taught when I took the course in university, the reading list for that course started with uh, an academic text anthology on folklore and fairy tales. And then we moved on to the very, very old uh, sort of children's book slash modern fairy tale, The Princess and the Goblin by George MacDonald. Uh, and if you're sitting there going, I've never heard of that. Yeah, I hadn't before that class either. And then we did uh, Tolkien's The Hobbit. We did The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. We did Brian Jacques' Redwall. 
Uh, we did the Golden Compass by Philip Pullman. Are you seeing a progression here? It, this wasn't really so much a course on children's literature as it was a course on fantasy that kids often read. And let's face it, especially with Pullman and uh, Tolkien, their style is uh, complex enough that teenagers are probably going to be the ones who, who are going to pick those books up. can imagine that in the current um, curriculum that, you know, when teachers recommend books, I don't think you're seeing a lot of people in grades four through six going, here's J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. Here's Philip Pullman's uh, The Golden Compass. You have to be a pretty precocious reader to tackle those when you're in grades four through six. But that's a course on fantasy that kids read. And I've seen this repeated in other um, instances, other universities, other curriculums, um, curricula, curriculi, curricula, um, you know, this, this, this approach where it's like, well, I wanted to teach fantasy, but they wouldn't give me the course, so I'm going to do a children's fiction course. And then, you know, you end up teaching all this stuff that's really, that's a fantasy course. But is it reflective of what kids really were reading at various points in history. Furthermore, why are we even calling it a children's literature course when that's really close to being a YA course? Uh, when I was doing my search for, you know, what did boys read at certain points, I got these lists of like the greatest children's fiction ever. And one of the, actually a few of the lists, broke it down into age groups. And the one uh, website that I looked at had the breakdown as uh, like baby to toddler and then you'd have books like, you know, Sandra Boynton's Muba, La La La, that sort of stuff. You know, the kind of things that we have for board books, those really hard board books that a kid can chew on and you can read to them while they're chewing. And then pre to kindergarten, like pre-K to kindergarten. Um, and then grades one through three and then grades four through six. And a lot of the lists just cut off at that point. They're like, we're done. That's children. That's you're not a kid anymore after that. Like now you're a teenager, now you're an adolescent, now you're moving into some other phase of life. And so it's interesting to me that we have children's fiction courses, but I've never, at least outside education as a discipline. So like the education department at a university might teach the sort of books that I think should be in a children's, uh, a children's fiction course, which would be like Dr. Seuss's stuff. Or how about some Roald Dahl? Or... Where's Winnie the Pooh? Where's Wizard of Oz? Where's the books that were sweeping the readership of children at various points in history? Like, The Wizard of Oz was so popular when it came out uh, in the early 20th century uh, that it became sort of the prestige gift at Christmas for a lot of children. Like, if you know, you would look forward to getting the new Wizard of Oz book and the beautiful hardbacks that they made. Um, and they really were. They were art objects on top of being everything else. And sort of the, the moment that children's fiction became about being picture books. But do we use picture books in literature courses? And it's sort of like I can imagine the response. Like, no, of course not, because we can't study style. No, but we could study, you know, the sort of poetics of someone like Seuss or the poetics of Muba, la, la, la. And I'm not joking when I say this. I'm, I'm legit saying, like, why aren't we actually looking at what children read or have read to them? And I thought about structuring a course uh, that way, like growing up through the course, you know, so you'd start with a few board books, a few really small child books and read them to each other in, in the classroom and, and sort of 
listen for the delightful rhyme and alliteration and wordplay that these writers utilize. Because there's tons of children's books that are produced, but, you know, you, you only get a, a Sandra Boynton every now and again. So there obviously is artistry involved here. And then move on to all the other, you know, ages, aging the class up in a way so that at the end of the semester, you, you might take a look at, say, one or two. I'm not saying never teach young adult fiction in a children's fiction course, but maybe do it right at the end of the course as a way of saying, OK, and let's see, like, how is this? You know, what a journey we've taken, right? We've gone from um, Goodnight Moon to Philip Pullman's The Golden Compass, which is ultimately a trilogy about killing God. But how about instead of taking a look at Philip Pullman, we actually take a look at one of these books from Paperback Crush. What if we were to really take a serious look at this publishing phenomenon? You might say, well, how would you even begin to choose the books? There was a a course at the graduate level at the University of Alberta when I was doing my master's that a friend told me about. One One of my classmates was like, okay, I'm in this course right now and it's on the romance novel and the prof brought in a great big bag filled with formulaic harlequin romances and the students just walked up and pulled one out of the bag and they weren't the same books and the prof said they don't have to be the same books we are working with an incredibly formulaic genre and we want to assess that formula but we also want to take a look at how each of these writers plays with that formula deviates upon that formula and so there you have an instance of somebody taking romance novels very seriously. And I think the same thing could be done, perhaps even with the same approach, right? Like pick a book out of a bag because you can get these novels at, you know, a used bookstore, I think, for super cheap. I can't imagine that they're like, this is super rare because, I mean, the print runs on these were very high. And Moss talks about this in Paperback Crush, where she talks about a teen romance series called Sweet Dreams. She said it was also an immediate hit with first print runs numbering 150,000 copies. And she says, to get a sense of how enormous that is, consider that The Fault in Our Stars, a 2012 novel by award-winning and then already successful author John Green, had a first print print run of 150,000 copies. So there were a lot of them. It just shows like the, like the, the level of success, but it also would demonstrably be the reason that you'd be able to get them for cheap. But I can imagine, you know, some of my colleagues, some of the people that I've worked with over the years going, are you kidding? You're going to teach Sweet Valley High? Well, I don't know. Maybe I wouldn't necessarily teach Sweet Valley High. Maybe, I, like I say, I would just grab a, a random assortment of them and talk about the formulaic nature of these and try to assess, you know, like, why was this a big deal? Why were, why, why were you getting print runs of 150,000? Why were teenage girls or whoever was reading these books? I mean, because that's, you know, you'd want to get into the demographics who was actually reading these why were they reading them? Why were they important to them? And and Moss has some thoughts on this. She says that these books helped turn us readers into the women we are today, not be we, because we embraced all the values the books implicitly endorsed, because she recognizes that these were very white, very middle class, about people from affluent backgrounds, but because they gave us space to explore our identities, dream of the future, and when the time came, engage in growth and rebellion by turning our backs on them. They validated girls' stories by putting them to paper, simple as that. A reading list like the one that I mentioned before is a pretty masculine list. Where are the narratives in that particular list that are, you know, none of those are written by women and very few of them are about women. Yet the lion's share of genuine children's literature, not YA literature, but genuine children's literature is written by women and is often about female characters. 
We can think about the writing of Judy Bloom or Beverly Cleary. And maybe in doing so, we'd learn something about the way in which publishing has been changing since the 1960s, since the 1970s, by being more representational of voices that had previously been silenced or marginalized. And that brings me to one of the biggest surprises in reading through Paperback Crush was the moment that Gabrielle Moss talks about some of the earliest queer teen love stories. She says that they began to emerge in the late 1960s, and I was shocked by that. I thought it would have been much later, but sure enough, they came out in the 1960s. But what Moss observes about those early queer romances is that they always had to punish the, the, the hero or the heroine uh, for their homosexuality. They could have a romance, but in the end, something bad needed to happen to one of the characters to sort of, you know, retain that puritanical moral position that North America was in at the time. But she goes on to talk about what she calls one of the most celebrated, and she uses the term LGBT romances. We didn't even have the Q when this book was written, and now we have LGBTQIA2S+. This is evidence of something that, you know, we are changing as a society. We are growing. And just think that you could explore that through children's literature via this route. But anyway, she talks about this book from 1982 called Annie on My Mind by Nancy Garden. And she says it was not, as many assume, the first YA romance between two girls. That honor is generally awarded to Rosa Guy's 1976 Ruby, but it was one of the first in which no violence or major sorrow befalls the queer lovebirds. And she goes on to talk about how the covers of the book actually changed over time, that in early iterations of Annie on My Mind, the uh, two lovers had to be separate from each other. But then, you know, as readers, the world became more accepting they're holding hands, they're coming closer, they're coming together. And that's that study of how things change over time. And I, and I think those are, those are opportunities that we're potentially missing there. So once again, I wasn't necessarily talking about fantasy, science fiction, or horror, although we did get to talk a little bit about fantasy. I think we can think about it in broader terms, coming away from this and thinking about some of the pop fantasy or science fiction or horror that we read and thinking about, you know, the usefulness of taking a look at that stuff. But it's what it's what was on my mind this week, and it's certainly about reading, and it's certainly about stories, which is what Triple Bladed Sword is always about. Next week, in a continuation of uh, Pride Month, I'm going to be talking about some of my favorite LGBTQ speculative fiction, along with how Star Trek The Next Generation helped me get over being an 80s homophobe. I'm sorry, but that's who I was. Uh, thank goodness I'm not anymore. Um, and uh, hey, if you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a comment, share it with a friend. I'm not looking to become an influencer or anything, but when I was in a band, it was always the most fun when we played for a big crowd. And I feel the same way about podcasting. I'm on Instagram both as Doc Pershon, P-E-R-S-C-H-O-N, and as Triple Bladed Sword. You can hit me up on Twitter at Doc Pershon or follow my Facebook page, Triple Bladed Sword, teaching fantasy, science fiction, and horror. If you'd like to hear me ramble on about a topic, leave a suggestion or a question in the comments, and if the auguries are favorable, I'll use that in an upcoming episode. Thanks for tuning in today. I'm Mike Pershon, and this is Triple Bladed Sword. <laughs>